Hello, Longview Point. As you are taking your Bible and turning to Ephesians chapter 6, I hope that you know that Wednesday is my favorite day of the week. I've always loved that with the students, getting to spend that time with them and dive into God's Word. And it's also my favorite time right now during this time where everybody's stuck at home because it's my opportunity to open up God's Word and study it with you. And so I'm grateful for this time that we have together. And I'm really looking forward to diving into what is the helmet of salvation today. So if you were there in Ephesians chapter 6, I'd like to go ahead and read that. And just to give it its context again, I know we did that a couple of weeks ago. I want to start at uh, verse 10, and we will go through verse 18. And this is what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Today, like I said, we're going to be talking about the helmet of salvation. You know, each year at our church, we have the fall festival, and our parking lot is filled with people and games, and it's just a lot of fun as we are hanging out together. The community comes to it, and this year we actually had a new game that we hadn't had before, and that was the virtual reality, and it was a popular spot. There were so many people there. The line was always long as, as the kids were just lining up. I know my kids loved it and wanted to go back and do it over and over and over again, and they loved to play that game. And it was really fun to watch the people as they participated in virtual reality because every one of them had a different experience, but the, the VR was playing tricks on their minds as you watched them. Some of them, they would you know, actually fall to the ground when they were pretending to jump off the ledge. Others were running, literally, right there where they were standing. they just take off running out of nowhere. Or some of them, they just couldn't make themselves jump even though they knew it was imaginary. Their mind was just constantly tricking them to where they didn't want to, to take that step and to jump off. Well, it's a lot of fun when you're being tricked by virtual reality into thinking that you're someplace that you're not. But as we talk about the helmet of salvation, we need to be mindful. We need to be prepared for the tricks that Satan is trying to play on our minds, to how he's trying to manipulate our thoughts and the things that are going through our head. And instead of allowing that to happen, we want to, to take those things captive and think about our salvation and the truth of God's word from that. And so there's two attacks that, that Satan really brings into our minds. The first one is the attack of doubt. You know, I see that a lot of times with our students where in doing student ministry, because there's these doubts of them trying to figure out who they are, to take ownership of their own faith, to understand what it means to live out their faith here in our world today. But they're asking questions like, you know, 
am I truly saved? I, I walked the aisle when I was younger, but do I understand my salvation? Was it real? Was it genuine? Have I had life change because of that? Or they're asking questions of, of why did I make that decision? Or, or maybe big questions about the faith of, can I trust this Bible? The, this book that we claim is God's word, can I trust it? Or, or as we get near to Easter, maybe they're asking about the resurrection. Can we believe that, that this is true, even though we've never seen anyone else rise from the dead? There's these doubts and these questions that come to our mind. But there's another way that Satan attacks as well, and that's through discouragement. That we can be discouraged as believers and, and not being as effective uh, disciples of Christ, not being effective evangelists because of the discouragement that we have in our life. We ask questions of, how could God ever love me with all the things that I've done wrong? Or why can't I overcome this specific sin? It just keeps coming back and, and I don't want it. The things I hate to do, I continue to do. But why can't I overcome this sin? Or this person that I looked up to, this person that I thought uh, was walking so close to a Christ, if they fell, how can I live in such a way to where I won't fall? Or one other question that I hear or, or I see or sense is, I keep doing all these things, these spiritual disciplines. I keep trying to, to draw close to God through these practices that I have. But yet, sometimes I still feel like God is so far from me. And those things can be discouraging and, and those doubts can be troubling. And, and we realize that these are attacks of Satan on our mind. And we have to have the helmet of salvation on to have our defenses up against these tactics of Satan. So what are these three defenses that I think that we can have as we look at the helmet of salvation? The first defense that we have is that we can have confidence in what was accomplished in the past. We can have confidence in what was accomplished in the past. As we talk about our salvation, our salvation was accomplished 2,000 years ago on a cross outside Jerusalem and when the grave was empty three days later. And that is something to celebrate, something to, to realize that is, is an incredible truth, that, that death and the grave have no chance of holding Christ down, that he conquered those things, that he rose again, and that we can have life and salvation because of him. Church, I hope that that encourages you so much today as we are getting ready, as it's Easter week, as we are preparing our hearts for Sunday, even if we can't meet together physically, we still are celebrating a risen Savior. But you know, as you interact with people in evangelism, as you take classes, as you um, just interact with people around the different things that you're doing, there's going to be people that question the truth of that. They're going to question the validity of the resurrection. How can we believe that if we've never seen it? If, if we don't know this has happened before other than Jesus, then how can we trust it? I think that there's some really good proofs that are logical and they make sense for us to see how we can hold it to be true, that the resurrection happened 2,000 years ago and it matters for our lives now. The first truth that we can really look at and hold to is that there are multiple independent sources. There's at least five different sources that we can look at that, that are telling different parts of the story. They they're still getting to the main event, but you're getting different viewpoints of the same story, and they're coming together, and we have great independent sources that are not contradicting each other, but they're telling us about how Christ lived, 
how he was an actual person, how he died on a cross, and how three days later he rose again. We can trust that these sources have, have, are independent, come up on their own, and yet they all proclaim the same truth. Our other proof that we have is that if the story was made up, then the details would be a lot different. What do I mean by that? There's, there's a couple of parts of the story of the resurrection that I think would be very different if the disciples, if the, the gospel writers were the ones who made this story up. The first element of the story that would be different is Joseph of Arimathea. You know, here's somebody who is a member of the Sanhedrin. He had just been part of the judicial council that had sentenced Jesus to death, and yet he's the one who offers up his, his tomb to Christ. He loans it to him. You know, if this was uh, a made-up story, it would be somebody who was sympathetic, that was distant from the enemies of Christ. But yet Joseph of Arimathea, he's part of the Sanhedrin. They could discount the story. They could rebuke the story very quickly and say, look, Joseph of Arimathea, he's not even a real person. Or, or he was not, you know, or he's a member of the Sanhedrin and he wouldn't have done that. But yet there's a true element to it because it doesn't make sense for someone of the Sanhedrin to offer up their tomb unless it's what happened. The second part is the, the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, which I'm sure you've heard about before, but the first one were the women. Now, as you look at women today versus women then, like testimony in court is accepted of women today, you know, considered equal, all those things. But back then, during this time, the, the women's testimony would not even be accepted in the courts. They were discounted. They were not allowed to even have that responsibility, that privilege to, to give a testimony in court. And yet the very first witnesses that the disciples mention, that the Gospels mention, are the women. And so if, if they were trying to build credibility, if they were trying to make the story fit what they wanted it to fit, the women would not have been the first witnesses. But that's the historical facts. And so that's who the Gospel writers tell us about. So they tell us about Joseph. They tell us about the, the women and their testimonies. And so the details just would have been a lot different if they were trying to make up this story to fit their own narrative. But instead, they're giving us historical truths, that the, the events that happened during this time, so we can trust it. We can know that the resurrection happened because of these multiple independent sources. We can know it because of the details and the, the way that they go against that time. But we can also know it because Jesus appeared to many people in his resurrection body. As you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as, as, you were, as we're getting near Easter, I would really encourage you to spend time in 1 Corinthians 15. It, it just is a beautiful chapter of the resurrection, the importance of the, the resurrection, and, and Paul just really drives it home throughout this entire chapter. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, this is what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
You see, Paul is telling us right there that there were over 500 people who saw Christ in his resurrected body. That some of them are still living as he writes that passage of scripture. And so if there were people who were discounting this, if there were people who didn't believe this, then they could go and talk to these eyewitnesses. It was almost like Paul was, was the police officer that came up on the scene. He said, look, these people over here have seen what happened. These people over here have seen what happened. There are people all around that know that Christ once was dead, and now he is alive. And so we can trust, because no one came out and said, oh, no, 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 that's not true. That didn't happen. But there were these witnesses that saw it, and that they could be trusted, because they saw the resurrected body of Christ. But my favorite truth, my favorite um, proof that we have that Christ rose again is the changed lives of the disciples. Here they are, as you, you flip the pages out of the Gospels into uh, the beginning of Acts, you have these timid disciples. You have them hiding in the upper room. You have them scared for their lives. And they go from being these timid disciples to tenaciously preaching the gospel. You see the way that they come out boldly and, and proclaim it with such a, a truth of this is the Christ. You see, Jesus was not the first one who claimed to be the Messiah. As you study uh, Jewish history, and y'all should talk to, to Pastor Wade about that because he knows it inside and out. But as you study it, there were a lot of people who came up that said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one that's been promised. But as soon as that person was put to death, their whole movement would just evaporate from underneath them. And yet with Christ, they kill the leader of the movement, they kill Christ, and these disciples, their lives are flipped upside down, and they no longer are scared, they're no longer timid, but instead they're tenacious. Instead, they are going out and sharing the gospel with people that Jesus was who he said he was and that he is alive and that we can have eternal life through him. They went from being fearful to fearless, even in the face of persecution. They were witnesses to the risen Lord and were willing to put them, be put to death on behalf of the gospel. So as you study the, the, the lives of the disciples and realize that so many of them gave their lives up for the truth of the resurrection, then we can truly believe that Christ rose again. There was a biblical scholar who stated that that is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again leaving an empty tomb behind him. And that is why this Sunday, as we approach Easter, we celebrate. And that's why every Sunday after that, we celebrate. Because we do not celebrate a Savior who lived and is now dead. We celebrate a Savior who died and now lives. He is reigning supreme. We get to come together as a church, whether it's digitally or whether it's physically, celebrate the risen Lord. As we think about what he accomplished, it puts those doubts and discouragements away because we realize the price that Christ paid for us. Our second defense is that we can have confidence that our salvation is applied to us today. 
we can have confidence that our salvation is applied to us today. Remember, as we're talking about Ephesians, Paul is talking to believers in this situation, that he is telling us that they have already been saved from the eternal consequences of their sin. This helmet of salvation, it protects us from our sins in our life today, too. That we can overcome these sins, that doubt and discouragement, that they don't have any power over our lives anymore, but that our power is found in Christ. One of my favorite theological books that I've ever read is a book by uh, Bruce Ware called uh, The Man Christ Jesus. I just think it's, it gives you so much fascinating, like it just helps to explain the humanity of Christ. And so I would encourage you to read it and, and just to see who Jesus is. But in that book, he talks about how Jesus was tempted far beyond anything that we will ever be tempted. Because you see, as we are tempted, when we fall into that temptation, when we choose to sin, when we give into that temptation, then we, are, we don't realize how close we were to victory over that temptation. We, we are choosing to, to give up, to wave the white flag, and, and to sin in that moment where we could have been just one second away from overcoming that temptation. Well, you see, Christ was perfect. Christ was holy. And there was no temptation that he did not see through to the fullest extent. And think about everything that Satan threw at him, trying to tempt him and, and get him to sin just once, because if he sinned once, then the sacrifice would not be worth anything. And yet, Christ saw through every temptation and remain perfect, that he is the great high priest who intercedes on our behalf and he knows what it's like to be tempted because he's been tempted far beyond what we could ever be tempted. And yet we have the power of the Holy Spirit living within us so that we can overcome the temptation of this world as well. As we put on the helmet of salvation, we realize that, that we have been declared holy and righteous, that we are able to go out and do good works because of the salvation that God has already given to us, that free gift that he's given to us that cost him his son. You see, we are God's workmanship, and there's nothing that we can do to change his love for us or the way that he pursues us. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just a few verses down, verses 8 through 11, this is what Paul continues to say. He just finished talking about all that Christ appeared to. But verse 8 says this, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. You see, he realizes that it was a huge act of God's grace to save him. But because that salvation that he now has, he is working for the Lord. Not to earn God's favor, not to get God to love him more, not to try to earn anything that, he could, that God could offer him. God has already proven his love to us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that gives us an idea of how salvation is applied to our lives today. 
So we see that it is accomplished. We see that it is applied. That, that once we ask Christ to be our Lord and Savior, that we have a standing with God that cannot be taken away. That nothing can change who we are to Him. But our third defense is an anticipation of what is to come. As you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it talks about the helmet of salvation there too, but he calls it the helmet of the hope of salvation. We talked about that a little bit last week, that, that there is this looking to the future, that, that our salvation, yes, it has an impact on our lives here, now, where we are, but it has an even greater impact for all of eternity. You see, we think about our lives and our life is but a mist. As we look at it, it's just here for a little while. It doesn't matter if we're one, years old, one year old or whether we're 99 year old. We only have a short amount of time, especially in comparison to eternity. That eternity, that if we've taken hold of the salvation, if we have that assurance of the salvation, that eternity will be with Christ that it will be far beyond whatever we can imagine, that it will be an amazing time being in a relationship in the presence of our Lord and our Savior, the one who gave us that gift of salvation. So you see our salvation, it has impact from what it accomplished. It has impact on how it's applied to our life. Oh, but it has a huge and beautiful impact for what we can anticipate in the future. I love how Tony Morita sums up as he described the helmet of salvation. He says this, I am saved from sin's penalty. I am being saved from sin's power. And one day I will be saved from sin's presence. You see, God is working in our minds and in our hearts, through the helmet of salvation, to keep those things in mind. So here's my point for tonight. When we set our mind on how our salvation was accomplished, we are freed to anticipate our heavenly future as followers of Christ. I hope that's you today. I hope that you are assured of where you are in Christ, that you know what he's accomplished for you, that you have Ask God to apply that salvation to your life and to your heart, to your head, and that you are anticipating a day where you will be in the presence of the Lord forever. I have a few questions for you, families, if you uh, are watching this together to discuss with your students, to to just kind of take the time to, to wrap up what we've talked about today. First question is, what questions that you what are some questions that you have encountered about the resurrection? We laid out those proofs, we've laid out those truths, but what are some of the things that as you're talking to people, they're asking you how you can trust the resurrection? Uh, I've come across people who believed in the swoon theory. I've come across all kinds of crazy things in evangelism. But what are some things that you've come across? Number two. Are there specific doubts or discouragements that have bothered you in your walk with Christ? We all struggle with it from time to time. We're all under that attack. But how are you dealing with the doubts and discouragements that Satan's throwing your way? And what are they specifically? Number three, what are you anticipating most about heaven? 
What are you looking forward to? What is the anticipation that you have in your heart for being in the presence of the Lord one day? And here's my last question, and this is just something for each of you as a family or individual. What are you doing this week to prepare your heart for Easter? I know it's a different time. I know that the things are weird and strange. We, we, we keep calling it those things. But yet we're still celebrating a risen Savior this Sunday. And what are you doing to prepare your heart for the glory that is your risen Savior? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are the risen Savior. That you sent your son who died on the cross and rose again from the grave so that we can have eternal life with you. That we can anticipate what it will be like with a new heaven and new earth one day being in your presence. Father, that we can overcome the sin that, that so easily entangles us now. And Father, that we can trust what you've already accomplished for us. You are such a good God. Lord, we've done nothing to deserve salvation. We've done nothing to, to warn it at all. But Father, in your goodness, in your grace, uh, you have poured out that gift of salvation on us. Father, if there's someone listening, I pray uh, that, that they have never asked you to be their Lord and Savior, that they've never given their life to you. Father, I pray that that changes tonight. And Father, for those of us who are your children, my prayer is that we will walk with you daily, that we will seek to protect our minds that we will focus on the beauty of your salvation, and most of all, you who gives us that salvation. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.